Okay, we're ready to get going with Sunday School. If you'd like to come in and find a seat, and we'll roll with it. We're starting a new series this morning, and I'm excited about the topic, and I hope that you catch um, the same excitement of the things that we're going to be covering over the next few months. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, this morning. We praise you as being a God in complete control and a God that stands outside uh, this universe and has some propositional truths for us to consider and for us to live our lives by. We thank you that you have included us in this grand plan. We pray that we might learn uh, from uh, these lessons over the next few weeks in how we might be better disciples and better followers of Christ and better to uh, have the mind of Christ as we are instructed to do. And we pray this and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Here we go. Weltanschauung. Good word. Everyone knows what that means, right? Okay. Verstandensi. Jawohl. Order nine. Nine? Okay. <laughs> uh, good German word, still in use today. Means um, some different things uh, to different people, but what is it? Everyone has one. It's communicable. It determines how and what we think. It drives a lot of our responses, if not all of them. And it comes in many varieties, but it's not a disease. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, It also is found in philosophy, science, culture, and religion, and those generally make very dominant contributions into, um, into that system, whatever it is. So what is it? Well, it's a German word that means worldview. And it's the, uh, every individual has one. And what we want to look at first here this morning is, well, what is a worldview? Well, a worldview comprises one's collections of uh, presuppositions, convictions, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the, life, the world around us and about his life. So a worldview is a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, too, that maybe reality isn't exactly the way we think it is. And I'll explain what that what I'm saying there in a few minutes. A worldview is, first of all, an explanation and an interpretation of the world, and secondly, an application of this view to life. Okay, so it's it's your explanation of wor- the your life or of the world, and then it's how you apply that to that world. So this morning we're going to examine, first of all, a true Christian worldview, and then secondly, we'll move on and we'll consider the sufficiency of Scripture to be the basis for that particular worldview. So that's what we're going to cover this morning, the worldview and how Scripture uh, is the basis for a particular worldview. So how does one form a worldview, and where does one start with that? Well, every worldview starts with what we call presuppositions, that is, beliefs that one presumes to be true without, with, you don't necessarily have to have supporting independent evidence from other sources or systems to have a presupposition about something. Interpreting reality in part or in whole requires that one adopt an interpretive stance since there is no neutral thought in the universe. You think about that a second, there's no neutral thought in the universe. In another way, uh, there's another way to frame that, and Francis Schaeffer, in his book uh, back in 1976, wrote um, this book called How Shall We Then Live? 
He says that people's presuppositions rest upon that which they consider to be the truth of what exists. In another way, to frame that, um, or the way Schaefer describes presuppositions, they form the basis of a worldview, and people will live consistently on the basis of those presuppositions uh, more so than even they may realize. That worldview lays a grid for the way they see the external world. Their presuppositions and worldview form the basis for their values and therefore the basis for the decisions that they make. An individual is not just a product of his environment, in spite of what psychologists or secular psychology may tell us. Schaefer explains it this way. A person has a mind, okay? You've got to think about this here a second. You've got a mind, and inside your mind you have an an inner world that you think about. Then having thought, Schaefer says, a person can bring forth actions into the external world and thus influence it. So people are looking at the world almost kind of like a stage, and they're prone to look at that outer theater of action only forgetting that the actor inside of their mind, inside their own world, who lives in their mind, is therefore the actor in the external world. Do you understand that? It's a little complex, but he's saying, in a sense, the inner thought world determines the outward action. In other words, you are what you think. Okay? Most people catch their presuppositions, their worldview, from their family or their surrounding culture like a child catches measles. But, when we, but we have to be careful as servants of our Lord and Savior to develop a worldview from a conscious choice after careful consideration of what is truly true, okay? Not what we think is true, but what, we, what is truly true. This becomes the foundation upon uh, which one builds. Let's see if this works. So what are the presuppositions of a Christian worldview that are rooted and grounded in Scripture? Well, F.H. Carl F.H. Henry, an important Christian thinker in in the last half of the 20th century, answers this question very simply. He said, quote, Evangelical theology dares harbor one and only one presupposition. That is, the living and personal God intelligibly known in his revelation. Without equivocation, Dr. Henry forthrightly and clearly believes that our theological systems are not infallible, but God's propositional revelation is. His revelation is infallible. Henry also elaborated on this theme by saying, in its ontological and epistemological predictions, Christianity begins with the biblically attested self-disclosing God and not with creative speculation that you see in the culture around us here, not in the creative speculation free to modify theism, as the interpreter wishes. Ronald Nash, another writer, uh, approaches the question in a similar manner, and he says, human beings and the universe in which they reside are the creation of God who has revealed himself in Scripture. For the sake of this study, we are starting here over the next few months. Uh, There are two major presuppositions that underlie the study Um, of all of the topics we're going to be covering. The first will be the external existence of the personal, uh, transcendent, triune creator God. And the second is the God of Scripture has revealed his character, um, his purposes, and his will in the infallible and the inerrant pages of a special revelation that we call the Bible which is superior to any other source of revelation or human reason alone. So that's what we're basing 
what we are going to talk about on. Uh, on. So what is the Christian worldview? The following definition is offered by Dr. John MacArthur, uh, who we're taking a lot of this material from uh, his book called Think Biblically, which is a collection of essays of different men uh, at the seminary and other um, uh, places. And his definition is this. The Christian worldview sees and understands God the Creator and His creation, i.e. man in the world, primarily through the lens of God's special revelation, the Holy Scriptures, and secondarily through God's natural revelation and creation as interpreted by human reason and reconciled by and with Scripture for the purpose of believing and behaving in accord with God's will and thereby glorifying God with one's mind and life, both now and eternity. So that's our working definition of a Christian worldview. And so what are some of the benefits of embracing that kind of a worldview? Some of you already know this from being here over time uh, and, you know, just having a, a Christian worldview that uh, is rooted in uh, your salvation. But here's a few of the questions that are going to be answered that we'll be addressing. How did the world and all that is in it come into being? We're going to look at creation. What is the reality in terms of knowledge and truth? How does one or how does someone... Um, how does the world function, and how do we function in it? What is the nature of a human being? What is one's personal purpose of existence? It may not be found in the book, The Purpose-Driven Life, although they may allude to it. How should one live? Is there any personal hope for the future? What happens to a person at and after death? You may know that if you set in on uh, Steve's uh, sermons on Revelation and other places too. So uh, is it possible to know anything at all? Have you ever thought about that? How is it possible that we know things? We'll attack that just briefly too. How does one know what is right and what is wrong? What is the meaning of human history? And what is human history? And how is it explained to us? And what is the future holds? Those are a sampling of some of the questions we'll look at or perhaps answer. Christians of the 21st century face the same basic questions about this world and life that confronted the earliest humans in Genesis. They also had to sift through various worldviews to answer some questions. And this has been true throughout history. Consider what faced Joseph. Moses in Egypt, Elijah when he encountered Jezebel and the pagan prophets, Nehemiah in Persia, Daniel, or Paul in Athens when he stood on Mars Hill and had to make some arguments there. They sorted out the difference between truth and error, right and wrong, because they had placed their faith in the living God and his revealed word. What essentially distinguishes a Christian worldview from other worldviews? Well, at the very core, a Christian worldview contrasts with other competing worldviews in that God, it recognizes that God is the unique source of all truth. And secondly, it relates all truth back to an understanding of God and his purposes for this life and for the next. Arthur Holmes, professor at Wheaton College for more than 40 years and author of a book called All Truth is God's Truth, summarizes the unique implications of a Christian worldview when relating absolute truth to God, back to God. And he says... Number one, truth is absolute rather than relative, and that means it is unchanging and universally the same. 
Okay, it seems like a simple statement, huh? But a lot of people don't grasp that today, and they have a very different view of that. And secondly, truth... Let's see if this works. Truth is absolute, not in and of itself, but because it derives ultimately from the one eternal God. So truth isn't true just because it's an independent thing. It's because it derives back to God. It is grounded in his metaphysical objectivity. What that means is he stands outside his creation. So outside of his creation, these truths exist apart from what we see, okay? Therefore, it depends on the absolute personal truth or fidelity of God who can be trusted in what he does and what he says. Um, And that's called the absolute propositional uh, truth. That depends on God himself, okay? So are there any common misconceptions about a Christian worldview that encompasses these thoughts, especially by Christians? There's at least two mistaken ideas that you probably run into. The first is that a Christian view of the world and life will differ on all points other than from other worldviews. While this is not always true, a lot of worldviews all encompass uh, the, the idea that gravity is the same. I mean, everybody knows that if you step off a cliff, you're going to hit the bottom. Well, we do not, as a Christian worldview, differ from that, okay? So we do share certain uh, commonality with other worldviews. The Christian worldview will differ and be unique on the most important points, especially as they relate to the character of God, the nature and the value of Scripture and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's obvious, I think, to a lot of us, isn't it? The second is that the Bible contains all that we need to know. Well, that's not necessarily true, and I think common sense tells you that. Um, For instance, there's no biblical instructions on how to drive a car or scramble some eggs. So it doesn't encompass everything. However, it is true that the Bible alone contains all that Christians need to know about their spiritual life and godliness and conduct through a knowledge of the one true God, which is the highest and the most important level of knowledge. Second Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 speak almost directly to that. Also, while it does not exhaustively address every field, when Scripture speaks... In any subject area, it does speak authoritatively. It's the final word. So the question is, how can a Christian worldview be spiritually profitable and in what context? First, in the world of scholarship, the the Christian worldview uh, is offered not as one of many equals or possibilities, but as the one true view of life whose single source of truth and reality is the Creator God. Thus it serves as a light reflecting the glory of God in the midst of an intellectual and secular darkness that we see all around us. I mean, you only have to go to a college campus and sit in on a philosophy class uh, to see that. Second, a Christian worldview can be used as an effective tool in evangelism to answer the questions and objections of an unbeliever must be understood, however, that in the final analysis, it is the gospel that has the power to bring an individual to salvation and not some logical arguments as to our worldview. Carl Henry, again, clearly makes the point that no person can be argued into becoming a Christian. Yet, without meeting the rational criteria of one's religious experience, it's not, you're not really fulfilling your biblical and evangelical obligation. One can and ought to be persuaded intellectually of the logical consistency and the truth of any postulates that we put forth concerning God in our world. I mean, you've only got to look at Paul standing on Mars Hill and see the arguments that he's making to understand the truth of that. One not need to be a believer, however, to understand 
the truths affirmed by such divine revelation. A person persuaded intellectually of the truth of the gospel, which Paul may have done there on Mars Hill, but seeking to escape or postpone any benefits of salvation, it just invites his own divine condemnation. Personal faith, bottom line, is the gift of the Holy Spirit, of God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the truth of an argument about worldview as a means of conviction and persuasion. Ultimately, it's God that converts, though it's not the argument. Third, a Christian worldview is essential in the realm of discipleship to form, to inform and mature a believer in Christ with regard to the implications and ramifications of our faith. It's the framework in which we understand all of reality around us from God's perspective, not from our perspective. We're putting, you know, a, a whole new mindset on. And secondly, uh, in order for us to conform to God's will for our life, for us to be able to obey him, if we have a worldview that reflects his view. So the question may follow then, what should be the ultimate goal of embracing the Christian worldview? God has a very direct answer uh, to that question. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So how do we get there? How do we get to a Christian worldview? What's our roadmap to get there? We're going to unfold that in the next few weeks. But first of all, we've got to lay a foundation. And today we're going to examine not only what we've talked about so far, but we're going to look at the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to talk a little bit about the attack on that sufficiency. And we're going to look at what Scripture says about itself, about its own sufficiency. And then, over the next few weeks and months, we're going to cover topics such as how to cultivate a biblical, how to cultivate that uh, mindset, how to comprehend creation, how to view the nations from God's perspective, what a scriptural view of science looks like, why Christian education is important instead of secular indoctrination, why biblical counseling and not psychology. We're going to look at masculinity. We're going to look at femininity, economics, uh, a biblical view of history, and we're going to understand um, the thought process of modernity and postmodernity, and and look at how those philosophical uh, systems influence everything around us. Uh, We're also going to look at uh, enjoying spiritual music and worship. Any clue who might be teaching that? Okay, And we're going to look at God in literature and artistic culture, just to name a few of the things we're going to be covering. Okay, So right now, let's take a look at the importance of embracing the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. I'm not going to talk really about the inerrancy of the Word. If you want, I think we've all been exposed to that a lot through Steve's teaching, and certainly there's tons of material just from the last Shepherds Conference online. If you want to delve into that in any depth, all of what we're doing here is really just an overview. But I'm going to start with that as an assumption here that we don't need to explore in any depth. A truly Christian worldview begins with the conviction himself that God has spoken in Scripture, okay, and that we have that inherently. So, as Christians, we are committed to the Bible as that inerrant and authoritative Word of God. We believe it is reliable and true from cover to cover. And we don't need to treat um, that, as I said, in any more detail. It's just a basic uh, building block. 
Our foundation is that Scripture is the standard by which we must test all other uh, claims to truth. Unless that principle absolutely dominates, absolutely dominates our perspective on all of life, we can't really claim to have embraced a Christian worldview. Our perspective on life um, just won't be consistent with that type of a worldview. We talk about Judeo-Christian ethics a lot in our society and in our culture, but that's not what makes up a worldview, a Christian worldview. That's almost something different. Admiration of the person of Christ and the moral, his moral teachings doesn't make uh, a, a Christian worldview either. A truly Christian worldview, simply put, is one in which the Word of God, rightly understood, is firmly established as both the foundation and the final authority for everything we hold true. When we begin with a right view of Scripture in that way, the Bible itself ought to shape what we believe from start to finish, beginning to end, okay? Just absolutely everything that we do and say and think. In other words, if we simply start by affirming what the Bible says about itself, the rest of the worldview should fall into place with the Bible as the source and the very foundation for everything that we believe. So this is the crucial foundational starting point in developing a Christian worldview. But is the Bible in and of itself sufficient to, to furnish us with that complete worldview? Well, many Christians seem to imagine that the Bible is neither modern enough nor sophisticated enough to equip us in this day and age, especially since we have cell phones. I mean, we you know, now should be on top of everything. Church growth experts tell pastors they must look beyond the Bible for principles of leadership from the corporate world and the business world. And certainly even a lot of churches today have a corporate model of leadership. They don't look to the Bible to how to fashion their churches. They look to the corporate business world. Psychologists claim that the Bible is too simplistic to help people with complex emotional and psychological issues. And in every part of the church today, the evangelical Protestant church, uh, scriptures are being set aside in favor of novel philosophy, scientific theories, experimental and experiential behavior and counseling techniques, and the list goes on and on. Observing the current trends in the church, one would think that opinion polls run by pollsters are more important than scripture, and that determines the truth for Christians. There's plenty of articles in books written putting forth a proposition that the church will cease to exist if we don't adopt some of these uh, more relevant uh, methods. That point of view is fatly, flatly wrong, according to the principle in uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 18, where we are told that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the true church. Okay. We can conclude that many who call themselves Christians today and pro, uh, promote these types of philosophies or views are something or have something other than a biblical worldview. There's an attack, really, on uh, that Christian or on the Bible being sufficient for having a, a worldview, and, and that's called into question all of the time. Even people who give lip service to the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture sometimes balk at affirming its sufficiency. That's a really key uh, point, I believe. The result is virtually the same as a denial of biblical authority because it directs people away from the Bible to search for some other truth. So what do we mean when we say Scripture is sufficient? We mean that the Bible is an adequate guide for all matters of faith and conduct. Scripture gives us every truth we need for life and for godliness and for a godly walk. To borrow from the words of uh, the Westminster Confession from 1647, it says, "...the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His glory..." Man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. 
unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Well, the church today, by and large, simply doesn't believe that anymore, does it? The average Christian seems to assume that something more than Scripture is needed to help cope in a modern world. You, all you have to do is go to a bookstore and look at all of the things on the bookshelf. They're addressing uh, problems that really are answered in the Bible. And there's all types of books about techniques, and, and it just goes on and on. The sufficiency of Scripture is under attack. And the effect of that collective worldview in the evangelical church movement today has really been disastrous. We see evidence of this fact not uh, in, in that uh, so many pastors and, the tr- and church leaders today doubt subs- uh, Scripture is sufficient instruction alone for its members. They want to supplement that teaching with entertainment ideas. You know, you can go to churches all over this city that put on, you know, light shows with their uh, music and all kinds of uh, fun, uh, they think, uh, games that uh, take the place of uh, biblical preaching. They don't uh, b- believe that studying, teaching, and applying the Word of God is sufficient to meet people's needs today. And that it's got to be augmented by all of these relevant, uh, cute ideas. They aren't convinced that the Bible is a sufficient revelation of truth. And they're continually looking for new ways to have a new revelation or a new mystical experience. And they open the doors to all kinds of demonic uh, deception in doing so. Even one notable women's Bible teacher and author who has a large following and has produced some really uh, excellent Bible st- women's Bible studies in the past. Recently, I watched a video of her, and she had this to say. She said that what God began to say to me about five years ago, and I'm telling you, it is in me I, on such a trek with him that my head is still whirling over it. He big, began to say to me, I'm going to, quote, I'm going to say something right now, Beth, and boy, you write this one down. And you say it as often as I give you utterance to say it. My bride is paralyzed with unbelief. My bride is paralyzed with unbelief. And he said, starting with you. Well, we may all understand that God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, through his written word, but she's advocating and claiming extra-biblical revelation that she has to write down, that she got instructions to write down and share with people. And, you know, where is that going to lead? She's claiming extra-biblical thing. And and she's just an example. There's all types of Bible teachers in churches and everywhere that are doing exactly the same thing. So thus far, we've examined the importance of embracing the authority and sufficiency of Scripture— and the current attacks on biblical sufficiency. So let's um, next consider, does Scripture itself claim to be sufficient? Is there a biblical response to the sinful abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture? Yes, there is. Many passages passages in the Bible teach that the Scriptures are a perfectly sufficient revelation of, quote, all things that pertain to life and godliness, found in Second Peter, chapter one, verse three. Second Corinthians, chapter nine, verse eight, also says, um, and and is uh, filled with descriptions that the all-sufficient resource uh, that God provides, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. For anyone to claim that human philosophy must add or expand to the simple truth of Scripture or that Scripture cannot deal with all these societal issues and individual problems is to to flatly contradict what Paul is saying there, his divinely inspired words in that verse. It's a direct contradiction to that. When Jesus prayed to the Father for his believers, for the believers' sanctification, he said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. 
And sanctify, as we know, means that we're set apart from sin to be holy and separated uh, to God. Sanctification encompasses the whole concept of spiritual maturity. God was teaching, Jesus was teaching that every aspect of the believer's holiness is the work of the Word of God, not the Word of God plus something else. In fact, to suggest that the Word of God alone is insufficient is to proclaim and to subscribe to the belief that lies at the heart of virtually every cult that pretends to be Christian. The one thing that nearly all of them have in common is the belief that people need to believe the Bible plus something else. The writings of some enlightened prophet or seer, the edicts of some church tradition, or the conclusions of modern science, whether it's archaeology or uh, cosmology, um, or something like that, okay? So to to deny the sufficiency of Scripture is to embrace a really age-old heresy. But Scripture consistently teaches that the complete holiness of the believer is the work of the all-sufficient Word of God. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul described how God instructed him and the believers there in Corinth. And he said, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Through the Holy Spirit, God dispenses his wisdom to believers. His word is so comprehensive, so effective, and so complete, and that verse 15, believers, he says, believers can judge and appraise and evaluate all things. The mind of Christ is the consummate mind of God, omniscient, supreme, and without any insufficiency. All the church needs to understand any problem, meet any need, unravel any issue is the mind of God. And the mind of God is revealed to us in Scripture in a way that is adequate and more than adequate for all of our spiritual needs. In Mark 12, uh, starting in verse 24, Jesus challenged the Pharisees. He says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? He was saying all of their, their errors, every spiritual error in any context, stem from a lack of knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. He said that Jesus was equating that knowing Scripture and he, uh, was like experiencing the power of God. So it was the same thing. Some people today, even some popular church leaders, seem to think that if the church wants real power, we can't uh, merely proclaim the Bible. This is the view of many charismatics who insist that the signs and wonders are a necessary supplement to proclaiming the truth of God, and others teach that uh, we, unless we supplement with some other programs, the church can never successfully save the lost. All you've got to do is remember how Steve has reminded us Scripture itself in Romans tells us there are no seekers of God, okay? So the seeker-sensitive church thing, they're looking for somebody that's not there. Apart from his grace to convert us, it's God's grace that causes someone to seek him. The proponents of the extra-biblical methods apparently don't believe that the gospel message by which we hear of God's grace itself is the power of God for salvation. So how did Jesus handle things when uh, Satan tempted him? His response each time, it is written. And that's how Satan is thwarted. The power of God is not found in some mystical, extra-biblical source of knowledge or what goes on in a lot of churches today, but rather the power of God resides in only the inspired and infallible and inerrant word of God. When believers read, study, obey, and apply that scripture, they realize it has sufficient power to deal with any situation in life. In Luke 16, uh, Jesus relates the parable of Lazarus, the beggar full of sores and the rich man. Lazarus died, and you may recall, and went to Abraham's bosom. 
and the rich man died, and he went to a place of torment. From his position of suffering, the rich man pleaded with Abraham. Then it says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Father Abraham, to send him Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come unto this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rise from the dead. Jesus was describing what he was going to do through that story. And the rich man's perspective is the same view that many have today that demands some kind of supernatural affirmation of the spiritual truth. But we see that even when somebody like Jesus Christ rises from the dead, that's not enough for people. So that's not going to solve anything. The Word of God, through the inspiration and illumination of the Holy Spirit, is powerful enough. It's all-sufficient in what it teaches about redemption and sanctification. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, there has this to say, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The writer there of Hebrews is essentially saying Scripture is unique and there's no spiritual weapon for the believer that is superior to it. The Word of God penetrates to the inner being. How? Because it is the living and powerful, because it is living and powerful, sharper than any spiritual tool, and able to go deeper and cut cleaner and truer than any resource somebody might come up with apart from Scripture. Thus, the Bible can do what pop psychology and psychiatry can never do. It is sufficient to penetrate and lay bare the deepest parts of a person's soul. The expression, the perfect law of liberty found um, in Scripture uh, is synonymous with the complete and sufficient Word of God. Therefore, the peace, the satisfaction, the fulfillment, and everything else that people look for uh, and the conduct of a believer are bound up in obedience to the Word of God. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants, we should long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So spiritual growth and maturity, the sanctifying process of moving towards Christ's likeness is tied to the believer's desire for spiritual milk, the Word of God. The Word provides all the resources we need for spiritual maturity. Even the direct and comprehensive statements on the power and sufficiency of Scripture are those given by Paul in his farewell message to the Ephesian elders. In the Old Testament, so we see the the New Testament has things to say about the sufficiency. The Old Testament is equally clear about the sufficiency of, uh, of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9, is the basic summary of that doctrine for the people of Israel. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You get this view there? It's supposed to dominate every part of your life. Let's turn to Psalm 19. I want to look at Psalm 19, uh, part of the Old Testament Um, um, addressing this very issue. It conveys the significance of divine revelation. The first half, the first six verses of Psalm 19 describes God's revelation in nature, what theologians for years have called general revelation. God's revealed in his creation. And Romans 1.20 says that 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And even though such general revelation doesn't guide us specifically to saving faith, it is one of the points driven home by the first part of this psalm and speaks to the superiority of God and his all-sufficiency. And the second half, the last uh, verses 7 through 14, talk about the absolute and complete sufficiency of Scripture as our true and infallible guide to all of life. So let's read that. It says, and it's to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory, of, the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from in the end of heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. He's describing his general revelation, right? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, the right and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden falls. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did you notice how the psalm concludes uh, by expressing David's commitment to Scripture? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David wanted the Lord to make his words and his thoughts biblical, right? He wanted to be a man of the word. A true and consistent commitment to divine revelation is the only commitment that really matters in this life. Yet many of the trends and fads in the church today stem from a deliberate abandonment of that perspective. Because Christians have lost their commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture, they have embraced worldviews that are not truly biblical. They lack a true biblical Weltanschwung, a true biblical worldview. That is why Christians leave Scripture which is the mind of Christ, and chase after all kinds of foolish ideas, even though they claim to be, uh, believe in the truthfulness of Scripture. They apparently don't believe the Word is sufficient to meet all their needs and uh, the needs of those around them. They demonstrate such a lack of faith because they have never really been like the noble Bereans who daily search the Scriptures. They have treated the Bible in a very cursory and flippant way and have never enjoyed the power of its rich and profound truth. The church's message must not be the Bible plus the world, but the message of the Bible, the message that the Bible alone is sufficient. It is the all-comprehensive resource God has given us for dealing with the issues of life. While Christians abandon that resource, and when they abandon that resource, it is no wonder that they struggle spiritually. So the question is, is the Bible really sufficient to meet every problem of human life? And the answer is, absolutely and to say it is not 
either by explicit statement or by implicit action to pursue something else, is to call God a liar and ignores the serious and ignores or seriously undermines Paul's uh, clear and very self-explanatory instruction to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter three verses fourteen through seventeen, where it says, "Let's put this up." But as for you. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So that's the starting point of a true Christian worldview. That is the point to which Christians must inevitably and ultimately return in order to evaluate and discern every competing opinion and philosophy that we are confronted with daily. Scripture is true. It's reliable. And above all, it's sufficient to guide us in every aspect of a developing, uh, of developing uh, a worldview that really honors God the way it should. So, this morning, we've considered what a worldview is and how our presuppositions that we have, either by logic or by... Um, Somehow we attain it, maybe we catch it from our parents, affect our view of the world, and even how our worldview determines uh, what we perceive as true and objective. We've considered that true truth comes only from the infallible written word of God, which is the mind of Christ. We've also examined the question of the sufficiency of Scripture to be the one true guide to all of life. We've looked also at how biblical truth is under attack by some who think that we need to add something to Scripture to be relevant. And lastly here, we have looked at the Bible's own claim, uh, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, to the sufficient nature of God's Word to all of life. So I hope that's a good foundation for us to start this study, and I hope that's helpful to you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you uh, this morning for helping us to understand and to clearly uh, see that there's a difference uh, um, in the thinking that we should have and the way we perceive truth, and that that should be significantly different and significantly like the mind of Christ and not like the secular world that is around us. We pray that we might develop and that we might cultivate and begin to understand how we are so wrongly often uh, influenced by um, things that are not true and how we can use your word uh, in our lives and how the Holy Spirit comes in and uses that to convert us and to put on the mind of Christ. We pray that we might be open and obedient to that, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.